Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle, and every week I'm here to bring you captivating insights from players, coaches, parents, and experts deeply immersed in the world of high-level tennis. But this week, we're stepping outside the confines of tennis and venture into the fast-paced world of Formula One. Join me as I engage in a dynamic conversation with none other than Patrick Harden, the performance coach for F1 driver Alex Albon. Patrick spends 31 weeks a year at minimum with Alex. He's been working with him for six years. He looks after all aspects of physical and mental performance for Alex and more, which you'll find out about during our conversation. You'll also spot clear similarities with tennis. We talk about controlling boundaries, building trust and relationships, staying focused in tense moments, preparing Alex to allow him to enter the elusive zone state. And I ask him how fit F1 drivers really are. One of my personal highlights from this conversation is how Patrick unravels the art of optimizing performance conditions, helping Alex thrive where he's at his best. Finally, I asked Patrick what makes Max Verstappen so much better than the rest. And he tells me, I really enjoyed this. And even if you're not an F1 fan, there's a lot to take away from my chat with Patrick. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, ASICS. If you're a long-term listener, you know I'm a huge ASICS fan. If you're new to the show, ASICS are my shoe of choice on and off the court. So whether you're chasing balls on the court, standing on your feet all day, or going for a run, ASICS has you covered. My personal favorites are the Solution Court FF2, which are the lightest tennis shoe that they manufacture, and they're great for covering all areas of the court. I also try to get a run or two in a week, and the Cayano is my shoe of choice there. If you have any questions about their shoes, you can send me a message or check out asics.com. Okay, here's Patrick. Patrick, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. You're not a usual guest. Normally it's tennis-based and members of top tennis players, their team, though we have had on like an Olympic, Olympic skiers before. We have had Timo Glock, an ex-F1 driver, has been on the podcast before. Super insightful. So I've been mean to I've been following you a while. And I think it's really interesting that you're working with like one of the world's best drivers, Alex Albin, and just being able to get the insight of how you help him achieve maximum maximum performance every week and how he deals with stress like yesterday's rain and everything. I'm really interested to know about that. So maybe, first of all, just tell us a bit about yourself. And I know you're from Dublin, well, not from Dublin, from Leash, sorry, from Ireland, uh, which is amazing. So yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, well, firstly, thank you for for having me on. Um, about myself, I'm a I'm a physiotherapist by by background. That was was my initial undergrad degree. Um, was somebody who always knew they wanted to exist in, in professional sport, and that was very much my my route. Uh, professional rugby, Aussie rules. Moved back to the UK from Australia and started getting involved with Team GB. Um, became a lead physio for Team GB canoeing for the Rio Olympic cycle. Um, in that time, did a master's in strength and conditioning because that was just a really strong adjunct to to work with professional athletes and having the, the physiotherapy basis as well. Um, lead physio there, then went to Arsenal for a couple of seasons. Um, I was really enjoying that aspect of it, but probably became a little bit squad fatigued um, dealing with volume. Um, and then around that same time, I got approached by two Irish athletes, actually, Michael Conlon, a boxer, and Paul Dunn, a golfer, um, to work with them individually. 
Um, and I started that and I guess I really enjoyed the level of detail you could get into with one individual athlete. Um, I felt like the mindset for me shifted from, right, let's just keep these players on the pitch and in training week on week to what are the key determinants of success within your sport? And not only do we want to keep you physically fit and healthy and strong and ready to compete, but actually, how do we get there so the top people in your sport can do this? You're here. How do we get there? And having the time to invest in getting them to that point. Um, and then, yeah, just some really random opportunities came up. And one, one was through Twitter of all places. Uh, ended up doing four rounds of interviews for a job I didn't even really know what it was. And then the last round of interviews was a company who supplied uh, high-level performance coaches to motorsport. Um, and, and that's where the journey started. So my background is is multi-sport. I've been somebody who's always been involved in sport, either playing. My dad was a coach. There's three boys in my family. So sport was a huge part of our life growing up. So to be able to turn that into a career has been really fulfilling for me, actually, um, not just in terms of, you know, making your work your passion, but actually just really fulfilling in terms of being able to carry on that really strong connection with sport from my family. So with F1, you describe yourself as an au pair for racing drivers, which <laughs> is yeah. really interesting. And I think I think it was Lewis Hamilton or Angela Cullen, his trainer, she really brought a lot of prominence to what you guys do. And I never understand how much time you spend with the athlete, like you're with them. All, like You're the right-hand person. You are really... Uh, and I just find that really interesting. Obviously, you look after mental side of things, physical side of things. You say you do some the physio stuff. You probably do you do their nutrition? Are you are you are you making meals for them? Uh, I mean, it depends on where we are for sure. If we're on training camp and we have a kitchenette or a kitchen, then I'm generally the one cooking the meals. Obviously, I get a professional to plan our nutrition and then we deliver it. But but yeah, it, it's all encompassing. And on top of the physiotherapy and the the strength and conditioning, I went and did three years of mental performance coaching training. So I add that, like you said, you know, the mental performance preparation is, is a huge component of it because that's what we're really talking about is execution under pressure, right? Once you get to a level of physical performance, not impeding how you deliver, then the rest is just about how you deliver in that environment. But yeah, like I know I joke, I say that facetiously, but, but you know, there's moments where, you know, I'm, I'm folding his laundry yeah. and... I'm asking him if he set his alarm for the next morning and I'm going to his room five minutes before we need to leave to knock on his door to make sure he's up. And then he's packed his bag, but I do a final sweep of his room because he's forgotten at least three or four items. So there's a huge component of just being a, yeah, a bit of an au pair to these athletes, but, but there's a, there's a really strong line for me between where your responsibility ends and where their responsibility begins. Um, and that I will never step over. I have in the past and I've really learned from that. Um, but yeah, we'll spend at least 30, 31 weeks a year on the road together. Now, we may not be away for that full week, but actually we're traveling together for at least 31 weeks of this season. So, you know, I spend more time with Alex than I do any of my family, my wife. Um, you know, that's the reality of the role. And unless that relationship is really strong on a, on a human level, then, then that will never survive. And this is our sixth season together. And I would say probably our relationship now is as strong as it's ever been. And can you tell us about the time you stepped over the line or can you give us an example of how you control those boundaries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was one, one was with Alex and one actually was previous to that, which was in Olympic sports. And we had a really, really strong squad going to Rio. 
And the mantra of the squad was being able to create an environment where the athletes just had to perform. They didn't have to think about anything else. And I struggled with that to a certain extent with some of the stuff that we were being asked to do that was taken away from the athlete, but given to staff. And I'm thinking, okay, they're professional athletes. I completely get that. But also adults who at the end of sport need to step into the real world. And are we just de-skilling them and taking away their personal responsibility? And the one that triggered me was we were in a team meeting and we were leaving our pre-camp to go to a competition. And the coach was like, look, this is the leave time. Get up, have breakfast. Athletes are going to drop the bags into the lobby. They'll go and have breakfast and staff will put those bags under the coach. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? And he was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get them to leave. I was like, these are professional athletes who train 12 times a week, minimum. They can put their own bags in the coach. That for me is a line. Like, I'm not a concierge. And I know we've just talked about me folding laundry, but at that period in that time, I was like, already feeling like we were crossing that line and taking away some of the responsibility as human beings, as adults, not just their athletes. Yeah, but fundamentally they're individuals. And that plays into a little bit of the identity thing, which I think a lot of athletes struggle with, which is being able to separate themselves as a human being to separate themselves from the athlete. Um, and I think we just feed into that sometimes by, by creating too much of an environment whereby they're athletes, right? They're not human beings. And the other time was with Alex was it, it was actually year one in Monaco and he had a really good, good, really good race at Toro Ross and it was his best finish. I think it was P6 or P7. So he was buzzed and we were running around getting ready. We'd got a flight to catch and I'd gone over to say goodbye to the boys in the garage. He'd been floating around with our bags packed in the outside. <laughs> it comes back to luggage. Maybe luggage is my trigger for some reason. And <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm just going to go in and say goodbye to the boys in the garage. I was like, fine. I just walked down the paddock, left his suitcase where it was. And then we got down to our transfer and I knew where his bag was. It was just sitting outside our hospitality. And he was like, got to the car all flustered. And he was like, oh, where's my bag? I was like, your bag is exactly where you left it. And he's like, oh, okay. And like, he sprinted back and got to it. And it's like, that's a bit of learning for me. But for me to... Yeah, bring his bag. It might seem like a small thing, but those things, once you start taking those little responsibilities away from him. So we talk some of it about our prep stuff. So we we measure his Osmo every morning and we measure his body weight. So, you know, for an Osmo, I need a urine sample. His responsibility is... What is, what is an Osmo, by the uh, way? So just check the concentration of his urine. So it tells me how hydrated okay. he is first thing in the morning. Okay. Which is hugely important for us in terms of really being specific about his weights for his engineers when he's in the car. Now I'll put a glass and I'll put a pipette and I'll put it on the urinal for him in the morning. His responsibility in that is to just go to the toilet and put some urine in that glass. I am not taking that responsibility away from him. If we don't get an Osmo, then our information that day is, to, is dramatically reduced. So the information we can give his engineer is reduced. So that impacts his performance, but that's his responsibility. Another example of that is, you know, we're, we're really hot in our nutrition and we travel a lot. So his immune system takes a, a beating, you know, the calendar is pretty relentless. So we supplement, um, I'll get all the supplements we need. I've got a tablet tray Monday to Sunday. I've got two rows. So you've got two weeks of supplements, put them in the supplement case, hand them over. It's your responsibility to take them. I'm not coming down in the morning, feeding your, your, your pills. So 
there's a really strong line around for me, what is my role and what's your role? Because you're the professional athlete. I'm just on your journey. You've asked me to come in and support you, but actually you to achieve being a world champion involves you taking a huge amount of ownership over your own journey. And Alex is someone who does that, but there's moments where I'll let him fail because it's not my role. Um, and he needs to understand that those elements are still his responsibility, irrespective of where he is in his career. Yeah. And, and plus you're, you're in a bit of respect for yourself as well. Like, you know, you, you ought to be pushed over. So there's a bit of, you know, and that probably builds a better relationship long-term also. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, the, there has to be boundaries again around that relationship. Um, you know, the start of that relationship is very transactional. Um, it's Alex, like I talk about inviting me on his journey. He needs to understand from me, from me that he needs to be physically prepared to be in a Formula One car. So the transaction in that relationship initially is, can I understand the demands of the sport? Can I put a plan in place that means from here to his first race in March, he's going to be fit and ready to be in a car and race his first race in Formula One? Um, do we know what the benchmarks are for, for performance? Can we measure those? Am I be able to demonstrate him his progress, demonstrate to him the gaps in his physical conditioning that we need to fill? gaps in his nutrition, gaps in his sleep, gaps in his travel planning, gaps in his social decisions. So that's really transactional stuff, right? And, and that's how you develop that first element of trust, I feel. It's just him knowing that he's, you're coming in as his physical performance coach. He's going to be in the right physical conditioning to be able to deal with the, the um, pressures of Formula One car. Then you start building on other elements of trust around more of the relationship side and being able to, you know, we talk a lot about being uncomfortable, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And when that trust comes, then you can start asking some of those more difficult questions around behavior, experiences from the past, emotional strategies that he's bringing to race weekends that some are positive, some are negative, how he reacts and responds in certain scenarios and how that can be positive and negative um, areas and limitations in his own uh, personal strategies, emotional strategies that I think are negatively impacting his performance, but maybe your values and beliefs that he's developed from experiences in his past that he's held on to really firmly. Um, and, and me being able to hold the mirror up in those moments and say, so this was a really stressful scenario. This is what we needed. This was the outcome. Here's your behavior. Is that how you wanted to behave in that environment? And do you think that brought the best outcome for us in terms of the result? Or in terms of the execution, let's take a, let's step back from the result, and that's difficult, especially when those moments are very often the really difficult moments when stuff hasn't gone that well. Um, and, and what we've actually learned to do, which is really important for us, is when we have a weekend like this weekend in in um, in Holland, in Zandvoort, that has been really positive. Okay, yesterday's result could have been a lot better, but that was outside of Alex's control. Why, why did last weekend go so well? So it's both sides. Um, but with that trust and, and that development of the relationship, in those really difficult moments, he trusts me that when I ask those questions, they come from a really good place, that they come from a place of an individual who really wants to see him develop and really wants to see him get to a point where he's maximizing his potential. Irrespective of where that takes him, success for Alex in his career and his, and his development is getting absolutely everything out of himself and as um, himself as an individual and himself as a Formula One driver. And I think that 
that true honesty can only come with a really strong relationship. And then also the importance of that in a world where, you know, it's certainly not somewhere that the Formula One world is certainly not somewhere that I have come from. Um, let's just say it's not always the most genuine environments. Um, so for Alex, he knows no matter what is happening in the paddock or in the team or in the people around him, he can come to me for the truth. Whether he want, whether he likes that or not, he knows that I can be that grounding of reality, which is stop acting like an idiot. Or I think you're right. Like that's not on and we need to challenge that. Um, so it's really good, really important for him to have that space where he knows he can come to me for that level of honesty um, and that level of grounding. But there's no way that I could have asked him the questions that I can ask him now in year one or year two. That has come across a six-year development of both his maturity and his ability to understand his own emotions and his own level of awareness of himself and then my learning and, and the education that I've gone through to the point now where we're at where we can be really open and honest about his performance and his behavior and it's not seen. He might not always be ready for the question and the, the answer might come a couple of days later, but actually I know he'll think about that for two days. Good. Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of... You've take you've invested a lot of time you say six years working with him so at least it must be great to see the relationship has grown mm. and the trust between bodies how do you is like you talk about a line between you but also from a from a professional and personal relationship line how do you draw that line because i spoke to some tennis coaches or tennis let's say even physical trainers where they're only professional there's no mm. there's no dinner with them afterwards they just keep professional and then some others are involved i know it's a personal thing uh and how relationships work but how are you with him how do you handle that relation side of things you know what it's difficult because when you work that in, for, and this is only my own personal philosophy, when you work that intently with an individual and you expect them to bring a level of openness and honesty to you about their emotional strategies and their experiences in the past and how they're influencing their behavior now and how that influences their performance and how that influences how they execute under pressure. It's a real deep level of trust that they need to be able to share that kind of stuff with you. And for me, he needs to see some of that from me as well, also to be able to meet on some sort of a level. So for sure, the first couple of years of the relationship was more like we talked about transactional and delivery of key performance targets, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we went through that second year at Red Bull together and that was a really difficult year for Alex. And more of the support was on the emotional side and it was more on the relationship management side and it was more on the supporting the family side. And it would have been, in, and, and it's also not me as an individual, but it would have been incredibly difficult to maintain that really hardline professional relationship in those moments in that season and having to step away and watch him try and deal with all of the emotional load that he was dealing with without stepping to the other side and it becoming more of a friendship. And actually what we went through that year but on his side and my side, because it was stuff I was going through in my personal life that he was really well aware of. And I thought it was really important for him to be able to see that, that in the real world, people deal with stuff as well. You know, you're dealing yeah. with this in your sport, but actually this is reflected all over the world in everybody's lives. So people just go through difficult times. It's really important that you just learn how to deal with that 
because you will go through difficult times. That's the one absolute certainty about life. You need to be able to understand your emotions, how to deal with really difficult times and how to become resilient. Um, and that resilience isn't about just blocking it all out, but it's how do I deal with it when it gets really difficult? And now move on two and a half, three years later, and he's godfather to my son, who's four months old. Oh, wow. So he's part of my family now. But there's also still a really clear line on the professional side, which is, and we have this conversation, this relationship will continue professionally for as long as both of us feel like it's still benefiting him in terms of his ultimate goal. And I've been really clear with him that if there is at any point he feels like he needs something different, that maybe we've plateaued in terms of his development and there's something else out there that he feels like he needs or that I can't give him, then that's a professional decision. And I would be more upset if he didn't make that call than maybe stick with me because he feels like there's a personal relationship there and that impact on his career. And if that happened tomorrow, I'd be incredibly proud of the six years we spent together. And I would be happy knowing that he's reached a level of professionalism and maturity to be able to make that decision independent of the personal side. And also for me, he's aware that there may come a time where I can't travel 31 weeks a year and I need to make a call and say, actually, mate, I've come to a point where my family and my personal side is more important than where you need to go. Now we'll find a hell of a coach to replace me or to fill that void. And actually we're going to look for somebody better because they're going to be able to take you further than I could. But that's just a decision that might happen at some time. So while I, well, we absolutely have stepped into the, the terms of like personal relationship and him being a, a part of my life and my family, there's still a really strong focus on, well, are we both delivering on what we agreed to five and a half years ago, which was Alex becoming a world champion? And that's, that's the front and foremost of everything that we do. Yeah, you know, it's great. And you spent like, what, 31 weeks together, roughly. That's like similar to tennis again, at top level, you're traveling yeah. minimum 30 weeks with with the player. And it, there's there's a lot of similarities here because you're in a team, you're traveling together. Some things are a bit different, but I want to ask you, obviously this weekend was a great race. Alex qualified fourth, was mm, it? Yeah. Uh, Incredible. He was third for a few seconds. Yeah. It looked like he was third and then he went into fourth. But so... One one question is, how do you help him prepare the final few moments before he steps into car to do a qualifying run? And even on the Sunday before they start the race, like it's A-list celebs everywhere. How, how, how do you help him focus to zone in on his job? And sorry, I have a third question now, but I may have to say them again. That's okay. Yesterday was raining quite heavy yeah. on and off, and I know they stopped for a while. How do you help him? stay ready when they come in after the rain yeah. and they're waiting around for a while. It's just really the whole mental side of things and to stay, you know, to what would be the word, to stay like just active and ready to go yeah. again. Just really interested to hear how you help him manage that. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, that has been a real development over the last four or five years. And you can template. So, so a qualifying session is a qualifying session irrespective of where you are in the world and whatever track it is. So actually what you're really looking to do is we call it his flow state, but, but, you know, people call it in the zone or, or whatever it is that you, you want to call it. We call it his flow state. And for that, that is, and for Alex, that is unconscious competence. He very much 
describes himself as a field driver, a very natural driver that he's intuitive to the car. So he can very quickly respond to how the car feels, how the track is changing. Um, he'll adapt that lap on lap based on how the track is evolving. The conditions are changing based on the tires, etc. So that is a natural innate ability of him through his learning and experiences in the cars and how he interprets the car from a kinesiology point of view, through his bum, through his hands, through what he can feel. And that all comes from him being able to process that unconsciously. The more he actually has to think, the slower he gets. The more everything becomes process oriented, the slower he gets. Okay, there's absolutely elements that are process driven, which is, you know, formation laps start, start first two or three laps. We do a lot of visualization around that. But actually what we need to do for Alex most of the time is get him out of his own head. And when he gets into the car, I know he's ready to go when actually his thought process is as clear as it possibly can. So there's a huge amount of preparation that goes into to answer all the questions that he asks himself before we even get near the track. So that now he the, the stuff that he gets into the car with is really minimal. You know, at the start, his, his mind would be clouded with information. Part of that is learning and experience and maturity. And, you know, four years in a Formula One car, you learn a lot. But also was us understanding what he needed to be able to access that flow state. And a huge learning for us initially was he had developed this belief that he needed to create stress and pressure because that's when in the past he felt like he produced some of the best laps he's ever produced in qualifying, for example. I never, ever worried about Alex on a Sunday. He's such a natural racer. But Saturday was always our biggest area of development. So I let him run with that. And the more you observe that, you actually realize those performances that came in the past were actually in spite of the conditions he was creating for himself, that in spite of that, he was producing those performances. But he's created this belief that that's why those performances were delivered. And it was the complete opposite. He actually needs no stress, no pressure, no anxiety. That's when he is at his best. So you look at us, you know, it's a really good question because when you look at us coming up to the car through the warm up, right onto when he starts putting his balaclava on, I mean, we look like two guys who are just on a bit of a jolly. Now, everything that we're doing is planned in terms of our preparation, but there's no any given Sunday speech. There's no punching walls. There's no music in the backgrounds. There's no heartbeat. It's quite the opposite. We keep it light. We, we take the mic, we warm up in the garage because we want to be around the boys because they bring an element of fun to it. It's nice and relaxed. We're laughing, we're joking. Because I know then when he puts his balaclava on, puts his helmet on, he's as calm as he's going to be. He's a guy with a really good sense of humor. So he likes we like to access that as part of his preparation for the car. The minute he's in the car, I know he's ready to go. So for us, it's creating a really light environment around those key moments to minimize that overthinking, that overprocessing, to get himself out of his own way. Now, that even comes down to the flow. And I talk again about flow. We use that word a lot because it's such a key word for us. And it's even the flow of that warm up. So, I'll, I'll, honestly, on a Sunday morning before a race, I'll do about 40 laps of the garage, making sure that everything is in the right places so that. Even for those last moments, like his kit's laid out, his water, everything is there. His warm-up stuff is in the right place. We move through the garage, all his kit's ready to go and it's lined up. 
so that when he comes and he gets ready, it flows right through. We go from bum, bum, bum. There's no me setting something up and he's waiting and there's no, oh, I need to get that. I forgot that. It's not, oh, because that's the car does everything yes. and that breaks that rhythm. So really light, really airy, really calm, flows through his warm up, flows into the garage, helmet on, out into the grid. What we used to notice was you can see he goes really deep in his own head. I used to notice that a lot on the grid. And what you need to do then is just break that thought process. And for him, again, the access is sense of humor. And we've had times where engineers have come over to us like five minutes before he gets under the car, on the grid, and the rubbish we are talking. <laughs> like, I mean, there's stuff I can't even repeat on the podcast, but absolute drivel. And I've had engineers come up to me after a race going, what were you two talking about? But that's conscious. I can see him going back and back and back. And he's going away from that unconscious competence. He's going to conscious competence, which is just slower for him. Yeah. So you need to break that thought process. It doesn't matter how you do it, but you break it. Like I said, when he puts his helmet on, he's ready to go. Even down to a huge step for us in qualifying around that unconscious competence was a lot of drivers will have a time delta on their steering wheel. So you're on a quality lap, you'll have a set target time and it'll update as you go through corners. So it'll tell you whether you're up or down in your time. Okay. And all that it was doing was consciously drawing him to either time that he gained or time that he lost in each specific corner. So he's leaving a corner and the first thing you can see is, oh, I've dropped two tenths in that corner. I need to find that somewhere. Or, oh, I'm up two tenths. Don't lose it. Don't lose those two tenths. So I've taken him away from the next corner because all he's, in, all he's doing is processing what happened in the last corner. So he's not thinking about what's coming. He's conscious again and he's slower. So we got them to take the delta off the wheel. So he has no idea through a lap where he is in terms of time. Because for us, we know that every lap in qualifying, he is on his limit. And that doesn't matter if he's half a second up or half a second down. I know he is pushing 110% in that lap. So that delta is actually completely irrelevant. So we, I even have conversations with engineers who say, you know, we need to find two tenths somewhere or, you know, he's about to start a lap and it's like, let's make this lap count. We don't want to hear any of that language because he attacks every lap like it's the most important lap of the race weekend. So he doesn't need that bringing that scoreboard pressure in. Leave that away from it. Just let him get on with it. He's an absolute beast. Let him do what he's good at. So yeah, it's creating that environment where the less he needs to think about, the better. And actually, you know, moments where, like you said yesterday, was so chaotic, two really heavy rain showers, one no red flag, then a red flag comes with what, seven laps to go? You know, we had a difficult one just before that red flag. We didn't pit when we probably should have pitted and we lost three places. So he's, you know, a lap before the shower starts where P5, you go into the pit lane for a red flag in your P9. So you're processing that. Then it's obviously everything's a bit chaotic. You don't have a restart time. You don't know if you've got five minutes, you've got 10 minutes. So we just take him out of the environment. One is, firstly, it's the technical, right? Change of kit. What do we need to change? Change your shoes, change your socks, leave your suit, change your unders, change your helmet, change your balaclava, change your gloves. Right, kit's ready to go. New helmet, ready to go, boom. Go out of that space. Go away from the garage. You don't need to be here looking at the panic, looking at the chaos, because that just feeds into your anxiety, that feeds into the adrenaline. He goes and he sits in the engineering where there's probably two people sitting there, silence. He'll look back. He'll look back at a couple of laps. He'll go back to previous races there in the wet and he'll look at some restarts. He'll look at some wet laps. He'll refocus on the technical. What do I need to deliver? Are you with him, sorry, at this stage? I'll pop in and out. 
So I'll come in with some, okay. I'll come in with an espresso, I'll come in with a banana, I'll come in with some water, check in, need, need anything, boom, leave him alone. He doesn't need noise at that time. If anything, we're trying to get away from noise. I'll pop in and out. I'll get a call. Engineer will give me a call with about four minutes to go before we need to get ready. Then it's back up. Right. We need to get ready. What do we need to execute on the restart? How are you feeling? Do you need anything? No. Good. Happy with everything procedure wise? Yeah. Fine. Right. Let's get ready. Let's go. Done. And it's the same. Back in. Helmet on. Once he's helmet on, he's ready to go. I'm never worried. Um, and it's helping him to release maybe what's happened in that previous lap or two that may bring a little bit of frustration. But the biggest, again, a huge component of his development in the last couple of years is the ability to step away from what's happened previously, knowing that that's not going to improve how you perform right now. If anything, it's going to make it worse. So you need to detach yourself from that. It's already happened. It's uncontrollable. Control what's happening now. Get a handle of that back in the car, ready to go again. Um, you know, it's really good to be in Williams right now and be disappointed with a P8. Uh, and we were, we were really disappointed. You know, we've left tracks this year with P8 and it's felt like a P1. And then we left yesterday with a P8 and it felt like a P15. And, and that's where we should be. Um, you know, we should be disappointed with leaving points on the table. That's how you get better as a team. Um, you know, they were there for the take and I don't think we executed very well as a team. Um, and, and Alex will be the first one to admit that. And if there was errors in his execution, he'd be the first person to put his hand up. But that's where learning comes from. And as long as we learn from that, and we don't do it again, then then it's a good experience. But but from a, a delivery perspective, you know, as far as a perfect weekend goes, um, from an execution point of view, it was as good as he's ever done. And, you know, I get a lot of people asking me at the minute, you know, he's in, he's on fire. He's in such a good vein of form. And I always come back with, well, actually, if I'm honest, he's been this consistent for 18 months now. It's just last year, he would have a drive like he did yesterday and the car, the capacity of the car meant we'd finish in P12 and nobody really cares you finish P12. But he had some perfect races last year where he absolutely executed to the nth degree of what that car could deliver. And it was a P11. I think we finished five times P11 last year. You just don't get any plaudits for P11, but but now a couple of teams have come back to us and our car has made a step and suddenly he's con consistently in the mix and he's at that same level and he's producing consistently, but now he's producing and he's getting into the points and that's bringing a lot of attention. But actually he's been in this vein of, vein of form for at least 18 months. You know, he's, he's an exceptional guy in terms of his delivery and his consistency. And you can see that in his driving. You look back at that race, his first in Montreal, P7, and or P8, P8 in Montreal. And I think he had Ocon, he had somebody, he had two or three cars behind him for 30 laps. And I mean, you know, everyone said, oh, what a defensive drive by Alex. He didn't defend once. He didn't park in any corner. He wasn't changing line. He knew if I deliver this lap time for 30 laps, I'll, they'll not be able to get around me. And he didn't move offline once. I mean, he was perfect for 30 laps. And that's the level of execution that he's at now. Knowing there's three faster cars behind you, but if you deliver this one lap time for 30 laps as tires degrade, they're not getting past you. And he's done that on multiple occasions this year. And that's what's been really impressive. The result for me is, again, a little bit irrelevant because the result only comes because of the execution. 
So he makes a mistake in Montreal and he finishes P10 or P11. I'm disappointed with that because he's not executed. If he's executed like that and he finishes P10, I'm just as happy as him executing like that and finishing, finishing P5 because it's about his delivery. And, and on that note, he's been exceptional this year. The, the whole pressure thing is funny where, you know, they're driving these superstars and, you know, there's somebody on their tail, lap two, three, four, and eventually a mistake happens most of the time, mm. doesn't it? That sort of pressure where you're trying to go that bit more, that bit quicker, break that bit later. And then an error occurs and it's it's just such a, it's just like somebody on your back. And again, I see some similarities in tennis where, first of all, you talked about the delt on uh, on his steering wheel. That is a bit like you hit a bad shot in a big point and that rests on your head. You're like, oh my God. And too many times, the best players, the Novak Djokovic of the world, they just move on from yeah. that really quickly. They just say, okay, bad shot. Say, okay, next point, let's move on. There's a reset there. Yeah. So I see that. And then secondly, the whole like, somebody on your ass I know the consequences are a lot worse in motor racing but like it's like I'm not sure if you know about tennis where yeah. you're serve and it's on serve it's on serve and then you're playing the big tree and it's like four all and all of a sudden the pressure for somebody to hold serve at four all against these big names is too much and they always come through so th again there's some similarities there and the just you could say the balls yeah. these drivers have to to just be so good under pressure is amazing absolutely and I it's, I think there's a couple of things around that. It's, you know, we had a conversation yesterday morning before the race, you know, starting P4 in the Williams. There's a lot of expectation there. But for us, and we talked about it, this is any Saturday, this is any Sunday. P4, P14, P20. Execute your start. Execute your preparation. Execute your start. Execute your first two laps. Settle into the race. See what the tires have. See what happens with the tires. How does the strategy change? Adapt to the race. That doesn't change whether, like I said, you're P4, P14, P20. We still approach it in the same way. All you do by focusing on the start position or the point in any particular game or the game in any particular set is you add expectation to that. You put pressure on yourself. Yeah, there's always going to be pressure in the environment, but you can choose to access that or not. And for Alex, one of his, again, a strong belief of his, which is, which is actually really good for us. And one of the ones that we've definitely kept is nobody will put more pressure or scrutiny on me than I put on myself. So I actually don't give a damn what anyone else says because it's more about how I felt about my own performance. Now at the start, he used to use that as a rod to beat himself with at times. And we've learned to be, uh, have a good perspective on that, right? to analyze the performance, not just the result and be able to say, well, okay, I was P11, but there's not much more I could have done. I executed as well as I could have done. Um, so it's like that. It's in those moments knowing that this is just another point. This is just another serve. This is just another lap where I have to deliver that lap time and I have to interpret the conditions and I have to make sure that I'm understanding the tires and I'm staying on with strategy. I'm, I'm making all the engine changes that our engineer is giving me it's just about delivery, delivery, delivery. You add all of the other noise yourself or people add it for you, but you can choose to access them now. And that's for, for us, that's why an engineer's language is so important. So important in terms of where his headspace is at in, 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 in laps. And I'll stand beside his race engineer. And if there's stuff that we need to adapt through the race, then there'll be a little no past or 
very often you just don't need to say anything, but there's times where you're just like, do not mention this. Like, do you ever have to jump on the radio and crack a joke? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. His race engineer is the only person who's allowed to talk to him during a race. Um, and then obviously the team principal will say a few words at the end, but no, no, absolutely. I get chucked out of the garage. <laughs> yeah. And tell me, you just go, just going on to the Delta again, wh- where did you learn or how did you or your team figure out how that was adding stress to him? And was it just a random test one day or how did you actually come to that conclusion? We we knew, again, going back to, so we, we'd gone through that journey of discovery around what, what are the actual conditions where you perform at your best? So then we're talking about being present. And that's a word, again, we use a lot. And we're talking about his performance in the car and we're talking about quality and the elements of quality that either are really positive or really negative. And he brought it up himself. And he was like, I actually might try and take the Delta off and just see if it makes a difference. And the freedom that it brought was incredible. So it came from an understanding of what we felt like his perfect environment was to be able to execute to the best of his ability. And then his awareness, which is again, part of why he's developing so quickly and isn't even close to his potential is, what are the elements in my environment that I can adapt that can feed into this perfect zone that I need to be present in? And he was like, why do I need a Delta? If anything, and he's been aware of his environment and interpreting and reflecting on his performance and going, I don't even need it. It doesn't give me anything. Take it off, done, Delta's off. So it's it's about his maturity and his understanding of his own performance and that openness that we talk about around being able to say, right, in those moments, what do you struggle with? What's going through your mind? What isn't going through your mind? What do you th- what do we think the gaps are? What do how do we make that experience better? Is there anything that we think is negatively impacting that experience? And then it's about working with the engineers and work with Alex to see what's acceptable or not. You know, the engineers go, look, we can't run that without the delta because of X, Y, and Z, and there's a technical element to that then okay, we need to compromise on it. But if there's no technical element that means it's going to negatively impact the overall performance of the car, then absolutely they're more than happy to let us take control of that. Um, and, and being at a team like Williams means that you have a lot more control. Uh, you have a lot more input. They, they listen a little bit more and they're more open to adapting to how the driver feels like they want to drive as opposed to this is the, this is the fastest car, go and drive it. At Williams, we're a bit more, how can we make this a car that you feel comfortable driving to the best of your ability? Was it their top speed recently? It's just way more than everybody else. So we're a massively low downforce car. Yeah. So, okay. so that has its, <laughs> obviously has its benefits. We're yeah. really quick in a straight line. <laughs> the issue with that is there's not a lot of tracks out there that are just straight lines. So when we get to s- certain tracks with street, you know, street tracks, lots of high speed, low speed corners, lots of combined speed. So high speed and low speed chicanes, et cetera, we, we tend to struggle because downforce gives you ability to can, to be quick in corners. Downforce is exactly what it says. It, it's, it's the car holding on the ground. So the, the higher your downforce, downforce is a spectrum between high and low, and we're hugely on the low end, high end. You're going to be really slow on a straight, but actually going to be good in the corners. And most teams have the ability to flex through that spectrum. Red Bull can adapt their car depending on the track. Our level of adaption is is tiny. Even when we went to one of our high, highest downforce settings, I think we were still the lowest downforce car on the track. So that 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 is fundamentally a flaw in the design of the car, but that's the car that we've got. So how do we maximize that and how do we 
play on the benefit of that. Next year's car will be very different, but yeah, we're, we're definitely a low drag car. So we'd be mega in drag racing. Doing well. Yeah. If we were, if this was yeah. a drag circuit, we'd, we'd clean up, but. Jam. And speaking of speed, have you done a few, have you, I'm sure you've done a few hot laps with Alex, have you? Has he brought you around a few tracks? Funny, we, he was doing a tyre test for Red Bull a couple of years ago in Barcelona. And it was the year that he was a reserve. And we were just there. It was a Tuesday after the race weekend. And we had a Renault Scenic. And as just a hire car. So he, they allow him to do a couple of laps just in the hire car, just to have a look at the car or have a look at the track and see what the conditions are like. And he absolutely guns it. Now I've got a video of it. I'm in the passenger seat holding on for dear life. And I mean, the car is screeching and I'm not, I'm not good with speed. So to me, it feels like <laughs> it's like hundreds of miles an hour and I'm holding on. He's just laughing. And I, I mean, our max speed on that was probably what, 90 miles an hour, 120 kilometers an hour. And he's driving there in a Formula One car in 310 kilometers an hour. It, it's insane. I, I, I don't even know. I, I couldn't even imagine how I'd feel at that speed. And he's at that speed interpreting, you know, he'll be able to tell you on a push lap where he lost a tenth of a second. And he'll be able to say, I broke a meter too early or I lost 2K going into that corner. I missed the apex by half a foot. I didn't carry my speed into the straight and I lost a tenth. And that's at 300, 200, between 250, 300 kilometers an hour. It, it's incredible, but it's, it's adaptation over time, right? It's, it's constant exposure with incremental exposure to the point where, yeah. you know, you don't know what a hundred kilometers an hour feels like because you're going at 300 kilometers an hour. It's yeah. It's, it's part of being the world's best, isn't it? Yeah. When you get there, that's what you need. You don't get there without having the, I'm sure drivers, some are more feel, some are more pro, you know, I'm yeah. sure there's a bit of a difference. But uh, that's, I'd say, yeah, doing hot laps with them at any speed is scary. So. I have so much respect. So you go back two races to Spa and, you know, you come out of turn one, massive hill down, its f foot is flat, bottoms out, straight up Eau Rouge. There's a kink and then you've got another kilometre and you go up, they go up Eau Rouge flat and they go over the crest, they don't know what's up there. And... You know, there's been some tragedies there over the last few years. A couple of young drivers have lost their lives and the track hasn't changed. The track's still the same. And then we go to Spa two weeks ago and it's raining. So they're going, not only are they going flat, they're going flat in the rain. And and he's, it, it's the only track of the year where I'm nervous in terms of safety because these cars are incredibly safe, but that's just a sequence of track, which is just really scares me. And he's just like, you just have to trust. You just have to trust that when I get over that hill, there's nothing there and he will not, he'll, there's nothing about him that won't be flat through that section. There's, he won't back, you can't back off. It's not about backing off. So for me, it's not just the ability to be able to process in that speed, but just the nerve, just the nerve and the confidence and the trust and, and, you know, that safety part of your brain to be able to switch that off and be, you know, know that, I, I, I can't be in this environment unless I do this. It's really impressive. You hear even that at the lower, like a track day driving events in Spa where much slower cars where that corner's always one of these yeah. ones where, oh, who took it flat? Who didn't yeah. take it flat? And obviously a, lot, a bit of it's driving skills. Some of it's like having big kahunas. Yeah. 
and then someone's just doing yeah just doing it and you don't know what's going to happen but it's definitely I've never done it now but I heard it's it's absolutely scary and breathtaking at the same time and for those guys to do that whatever speed they're doing it at is just crazy and you see his helmet cam so you get a really good view through his visor and I mean he can't see 15 meters ahead of him he can see the flashing light of the car in front and very often what you'll see him and other drivers do, they'll drive to the side of the track so they can see the white line. And that's the reference okay. point. So when they see the white line change, they know they're coming to a corner. Now he'll, he'll obviously intuitively have a feel for where the corner is just because he's done that track so many times. And yeah, his knowledge of tracks is just obviously insane. But that's the level of how quickly they need to react um, in terrible conditions. What are you doing to train the reactions? It's talked so much about how good the reactions are. And at that speed, like, it's just crazy. Yeah. What are you doing in the off season or throughout the season to, to make them as sharp as possible? Yeah. So look, there's elements that you just can't recreate, which is, you know, scenarios like that. What we do a lot of, we do cognitive functioning under fatigue and we do information processing under fatigue. And then we just do pure reaction skills. So information processing, how quickly can you process that? deliver the right result with speed and accuracy. And then we do, like I said, information processing and cognitive function under fatigue. So we'll build in cognitive function and information processing through anaerobic sessions where I'm fatiguing his body, but I need his mind to stay sharp. So you create environments of stress, either physically or fatigue, and then you you try and stimulate that cognitive function to be able to still process information, recall information, answer questions, be accurate with your information um, under those kind of environments. So there's there's that information processing, cognitive functioning element, but then there's also just the speed and reaction skills, which are more around interpreting your environment. How quickly can you deliver the right result with accuracy? That's a bit more of the physical and eye visual side. And then the cognitive side is more of the information processing. Uh, what questions would you ask them? Like a simple addition question or memory recall? It can be memory recall. So you, you know, with screens or colors can be oh, with screens. Yeah, okay. So so it can be simple mathematics, but he's answering three questions back. So there's a, the, 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 there's a delay. So he needs to remember three questions in a row and then he's answering for three. So, you know, three questions will play and then he answers for the first question, but he's three questions in. So every, every time, so he's processing three questions back while still interpreting and remembering what's happening now. Um, anything that can stimulate him that's interesting um, you try and make it interesting, but there's times where, you know, some of the old school stuff is still just the best, certainly in terms of the physical development work. But yeah, there's so many gadgets out there now, um, you could get weighed down in them. But it, it's simply for me, the, the two elements that I work on predominantly is the visual and hand-eye element, which is the speed and accuracy and precision. And then there's the cognitive function, which is generally re memory recall and then processing of information or fatigue. Um, and then... You know, time in the car is the best training, really. You know, and what we, we work back from that then are there gaps. And that's the bit that we can work on. Um, we test his visual field every year. And then, you know, we look for gaps in terms of his visual processing. But then it's really about elements of his performance where we think there may be a gap in terms of his cognitive function. And then we work backwards from there. And I know how big simulate simulators are mm. in the F1 world. They spend a lot of time there. Does obviously time spent in the simulator does that greatly help reaction or how useful is that 
it, it is, of course. It's it's you know the simulators that these teams have at their factories are as close. I mean, they're not, but they're as close to driving on track as you'll ever get, and without actually driving on track. Now, the drivers will tell you it's really far from what they would do in a car, and and that's true. But it's as close to they'll get. So time in those simulators is useful um, for sure. And it's obviously invaluable to the teams in terms of how to develop their cars for next year, how they set up their cars for each individual track as they come through the season. They can test different weather conditions, et cetera, tire setups, tire warm-ups, outlaps, push laps, et cetera. So they, it's invaluable in terms of how the teams prepare for race weekends. So they spend a lot of time in there, you know, he'll do at least one day in between each race there. And then when he has a bigger gap, he'll spend at least two or three days. And one day of that may be focused on races that are coming. And then one or two days of that is focused on development for the car for next year. So, you know, the the car for next year, they'll be working on some aero setup in the wind tunnel. They'll come and they'll put that on a simulator. Alex will drive it. He'll go, yeah, that feels quicker. No, that doesn't feel quick. What does it need to be quicker? If it is quicker, how do we develop it? How does that fit in with the rest of the model, et cetera? So it's it's invaluable. And, and obviously from a technical development point of view, it's always part of that cognitive development again, which is understanding the car. What does a car need to be quick? What's my driving style? How does that fit with the car that I've got? How do we change the setup to fit with my driving style to get the most out of the car based on what track we're at, based on the conditions at the track, based on the tire compound, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's massive elements of unknown that you can start to tick off by just being in a simulator, which is not just about developing his speed and his reaction skills, but also developing his cognitive function, his ability to understand how a car needs to be set up to be quick in each individual track. And also all the new buttons. Like I'm sure the buttons change yeah. on the steering wheel yeah. a bit. Like, like it's like it's crazy yeah. the amount of buttons they have that and they're changing the mid corner and yeah. all sorts. So he could have he could have anything up to 12, 14 switch changes in a qualifying lap. Yeah. And that's the car on the limit, max speed, one set of tires, one lap. You know, you might have one lap left based on where, you know, the rest of qualifying's gone in a, in a qualifying session and you're making switch changes that you've just adapted from the lap before. Not 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 a, a procedure that you've learned for the last week but you've come in from your last lap and said, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. And they've gone, right, you need to do this here, this here, this here. And then he's doing that in corner or as he leaves a corner or changes switches in between two really short corners. And that, that you know, we talk about, you know, doing cognitive processing and information because there's nothing I can do that can prepare him for those moments. You you create the foundation for that, but actually exposure to that in the environment is, is what really brings about the development. Um, you're just creating the platform for that to happen. It's just, it's like what we do with our neck training, right? When he's season's finished in November, first test is in mid-February, we start back in early January. We have a huge focus of that is neck loading. But actually what we're only doing is trying to minimize the pain for that first test day, that second test day, because nothing I can do in terms of load and exposure will match what he goes through when he's in the car. But what we're trying to do is limit... <laughs> limit the pain for those first couple of days. Yeah. And we know how well we've done, obviously by the scores that we get, but also by how well he can manage those first couple of days. And once he's done two or three race weekends, his neck is set for the season and we'll dip in and out when we've got a little break and we'll we'll retest. But his neck scores are are crazy. You know, he can when we do his one RM, so his break tests at the start of the season this year, and this was pre season before he's had any exposure, you know, 
left and right side flexion is 80 kilos. Extension is about 85 kilos. So that is know. mega. That's crazy. And so ultimately, how fit is Alex Albon? Like compare him to you've worked with boxers. Yeah. You could say golfers are a bit different a little bit, but as from a from an athlete, how much of an athlete is he? I know it's sports specific as well, yeah. but he has it. He needs endurance. He needs reactions. Yeah. He has to be his neck is strong. I'm sure other parts is his left leg. I'm sure has to be extremely strong to yeah. to push the heavy brakes. And uh, so as an athlete, how fit is Alex? Yeah, that's that's a really good comparison because. Boxing is probably, for me, as close as you'll get in terms of the spectrum of fitness that these athletes need to exist upon to be successful. So, you know, some Olympic sports and other sports where there's a single, either one or two biomotors of physical performance that determines your success. You know, sprinters don't often run marathons. Marathon runners aren't very good sprinters. Yeah. But with somebody like Alex and somebody like Mick, need a huge aerobic capacity because they need to exist in their sport for an extended period of time. So really good aerobic base, um, anaerobic thresholds. We work a lot on tempo. We work a lot on high heart rates for extended periods because there's periods in qualifying, periods in a race where he's either defending or, you know, the start of the race where his heart rate's 170, 180 plus, and that could be there for five, six, seven minutes. Okay, there's not the same in terms of lactic, but actually it's just exposure at those heart rate zones. You know, we yeah. talk about G-force. If you go through the sequence of corners in Maggots and Beckett's, it's a 5G, a 4G, a 3G and a 4G corner. That's one sequence and it's about 120 kilos through his neck. So from a neck endurance capacity and neck strength capacity, it's massive. You know, shoulder endurance, you know, these cars obviously have power steering, but you're doing what, 140, 150 laps a race weekend. You know, some of the steering rakes are heavy depending on the track and, and that can put a huge load in the shoulders. Trunk capacity, huge be able to, you know, Obviously, they're belted in, but they may be a strong foundation for their shoulder girdle. Um, and then, you know, we talk about more of the cognitive stuff, the visual stuff. So not only are they operating under a huge amount of physical stress, they've got to do that with precision. They've got to process information. So there's a huge tactical element like there is in boxing. It's interpreting as you progress through your performance. Same as tennis, right? Matches change from set to set. You need to be able to interpret mm -hmm. that from a tactical point of view and implement change. And then we, you know, one thing we haven't touched on is actual environmental conditions. So we're going to Singapore in two races time. We came from Hungary three races ago. The track temperature in Hungary was 62 degrees. He's in, he's in a layer of fire retardant kit. He's got a fire retardant suit. Yeah. He's in a balaclava in a helmet. He's sitting on his engine because it's right behind him. And it's 62 degrees in track temperature. We work out, you know, when we talk about having a really clear idea of where his weight aspect is that in the morning pre-session and post-session, you know, we calculate how much fluid he's allowed. And very often that's 500 mils. So he's got 500 mils to last him a race. He, because it gets really warm. What sort of weight, let's say Singapore, what sort of weight would he lose in kilos? Yeah. So the most is Singapore. And that was three years ago and he did three and a half kilos in race. That's a lot. And that's obviously muscle glycogen, but it's also, yeah, water. Water load. And what, do, you, do you give him electrolytes in the water that he yeah. gets, or is it just plain water? Yeah, you, electrolytes. Um, but again, you know, if you've got 500 mils of electrolytes, like electrolyted water, but you're losing three and a half kilos, um, you know, you, you're just doing your best to minimize the impact. 
that's why we use a lot of pre-cooling strategies in those really hot conditions to try and get its core body temperature down to minimize the impact of that heat for as long as we possibly can in race. Is that the vest that they wear? So, so that's, that's a bit of a faff, but the real, the real deal is, is the ice bath. <laughs> you got to get him into the ice bath and get his core temperature down. Um, and you know, he's Thai heritage. He loves the heat. He doesn't like the cold. If you can imagine every cartoon you've ever seen of trying to put a cat in a bat, that's what we have to endure every time we need to get <laughs> him into an ice bath. <laughs> yeah. He hates it, but he knows that it's good for his performance. So he'll, he'll grin and bear it after a lot of complaining. But so then you throw in those environmental conditions. Um, so, so that's probably the one that's a little bit different from other sports in terms of the performance, certainly from a boxing point of view, but it, it's the spectrum of physical fitness that you need to be able to yeah. exist upon while still delivering with precision, while still being able to interpret the sport as it uh, progresses and being able to make adaptations to your tactics as that is developing. And, you know, you're racing other individuals or you're boxing against somebody who is also interpreting how that fight or that race is going and making their own changes. So it's a constant changing system. So the more that you can provide a physical platform to, to buffer away that fatigue, the, the better position he's in to make those cognitive decisions when it, when he needs to make them the most. And look, a lot of the time, certainly for us, those points are won and lost in the last 10 laps. And that's the point at which that fatigue is at its highest or that physical toll is taking its effect. But that's actually when we need them to be at his sharpest. Yeah, it's, it's unbe- they're unbelievable. Like there's so many different facets going to a bit of me. I don't know why I thought of it there. It's like, it's a bit like a surgeon carrying out like a 10 hour heart operation yeah. or, you know, it used to be on the ball. But then also there's another surgeon competing against you to do it somebody else and you're in a race and it's yeah. it's crazy and you're doing it. It, it. Yeah, it's just amazing. But just a couple more questions, Patrick. Is there any other Irish lads, girls in the paddock that you know or is there many Irish in that world? I do know, I remember Eddie Irvine's sister used to host parties back in the day. I'm not sure if she still does it now, but from a work point of view, from the serious work of things, not the partying side of things, I'm sure there's a lot of Irish guys, girls partying there, but people in your line of work or engineers, yeah. is there many Irish that you can talk to? Yeah, there, there, there's an Irish physio, Damien Kelly, who was uh, with Nikita Mazepin um, and he's not in F1 anymore but he's still hovering around the paddock and he helps out. He's supporting Tom Clarks, who's a coach for um, Esteban Ock and he's supporting him a little bit this year. He's a really good guy. Uh, his background is rugby. Uh, there's a, one of Max's race control engineers is, is a guy called Michael Manning from Cork. He's a really good guy. And obviously we were at Red Bull for a couple of years and yeah, spent a bit of time with him. Surprisingly, there's not a lot of Irish people in the paddock. Um, not as many as I would say, you know, in sports where I've worked in previously, there's always been a good contingent of high-level Irish sports staff um, floating around. But F1 is actually one of those where I've not seen a lot. And maybe that's just okay. access and exposure and opportunity. Um, you know, it's obviously we've had Eddie, but, you know, there's not been a lot of Irish exposure in Formula 1. I have noticed the interest level in Formula One has just gone through the roof in Ireland. Oh yeah, uh, it's the Netflix. Yeah, it's just gone crazy. But there's not as many as you would expect in terms of you know if I take rugby and Aussie rules and and professional football and Olympic sports, you know the proportion of those staff members who are Irish exponentially more than there is right now in Formula One. But I'm always happy to see an Irish face because uh, we get one in the door, we can get a few more behind us. 
Yeah, the more the better. Yeah. And last question. I know all these drivers like Alex, all these, they're all come from, you know, they all come from different F, F2, F3, Carton, other stuff. They're all, they're all the best. They're all number one in mm. their categories and they all end up in Formula One. So they're all world champions at some state. They get there and I know then it's a lot dependent about the car. I know Red Bull is so far ahead. Ferrari are struggling. Yeah. But ultimately, somebody like Max Verstappen right now, I think is a cut above the rest. Yeah, and you say absolutely. you've been the Red Bull garage before. What's one thing that just makes him different from everybody else? Is there anything that stands out on the inside that we wouldn't see on the outside? He's absolutely ice cold in terms of his delivery. Ruthless. There is no tolerance for mistake. And actually, as a human being, he's a really nice guy, lovely guy. And I know he doesn't come across like that in the media, but he has a relationship with the media where, you know, when he started first at the age of 16 and he's had some incidences, a couple of crashes, people, you know, media were calling him crash stapping and et cetera, et cetera. So he's developed a bit of a dislike for the media in terms of how much he gives them. So then there's this persona that he's not a nice guy, et cetera, but he is a really lovely guy. But I mean, he is ruthless when it comes to performance. Zero tolerance for mistakes. Zero tolerance for mistakes. And that's where you need to exist. And when I say zero tolerance for mistakes, he's not out there wrecking the garage or banging his fist in the engineering table when <laughs> something goes wrong. But he doesn't hide from mistakes either. So if something has happened, whether it's his or somebody else's to own, he's putting a spotlight on that and saying, this is the mistake we made. This can never happen again. So from that point of view, absolutely ruthless. Um, and his delivery is just exceptional. <laughs> he, he just, he's a generational talent. He's a Ronaldo Messi of the F1 world in the same way Hamilton is. You know, that debate will go on and on, but Verstappen's in that same category for sure, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, look, the Red Bull car this year is, is an absolute beast. But look at the difference between him and Sergio, right? He's in it too. They have the same car. So why isn't, yeah, no, you're yeah, right. Yeah. No, that's so, it. No, no, thank you very much. That was really insightful. Great to, great to speak to somebody working at with high level athletes in different sports. So I uh, wish you the best of luck in the next remaining 11 races, I think, which is crazy. Yeah. So yeah, keep on traveling. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any choice, but yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to, we've got some fun races coming up. I'm looking forward to Monza next weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Fabio. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're listening now, I believe you did. If you know anybody else who might be interested, please share it. And until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>